This is Doug Servan. I'm one of the hosts of iHeartPCA, a little podcast where we're talking about what's good and right and believable and beautiful in the denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. I am calling in from my house. Normally, I'm at the church, but I'm at the house right now because our church does not have internet because we had this big storm. I'm not going into all my personal life necessarily right now, but that's what's going on. And uh, my friend, good friend, Justin Edgar, tell us who you are, Justin, and where you're calling in from. Hey, Doug, I'm uh, Justin calling in from Albuquerque. I'm also uh, chilling at my house, man. So good to be here with you. Great. Okay, we're going to get straight to our guests. We have two really amazing special guests with us today. One is Tim LaCroix. Tim, I'm going to start with you. And Tim, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing these days, where you're calling in from, where you're at specifically in your location, et cetera. Well, uh, my name is Tim LaCroix. I am the senior pastor of Grace and Peace Fellowship, which is a PCA church in St. Louis, Missouri. I've been here for, it'll be two years in before that, I pastored a small church in Columbia, Missouri, where I pastored Doug's daughter and uh, married her to her husband, Adam. So Doug and I go back a little ways. Um, I'm also a visiting instructor, which is the term that Covenant Seminary uses as, for an adjunct professor of church history at Covenant Seminary, and I teach ancient and medieval church history course uh, online and in person with a mask on because of COVID. <laughs> of course. We wouldn't expect anything less right now. Yeah. And also we have really a treat for us uh, today is to have Rachel Dan Hollander on our podcast. We're so glad to have you, Rachel. I'm holding your book in my hand. I want you to sign it for me through the airwaves, if you could figure out how to do that. So why don't you introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you're calling in from, what you're doing these days. Yeah, I'm Rachel Denhollander. I'm a wife and a mom of four young kids, nine, six, five, and two. Uh, homeschool them. I'm also a licensed attorney. Uh, my husband is a PhD student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we attend an RBC church. I have great appreciation for the PCA and um, and some really great, great pastors uh, that are good friends of ours in the denomination. Uh, I do a wide variety of things outside of uh, homeschooling and being a wife and mom. I'm licensed attorneys. I do whatever's of sexuals uh, and help them uh, pursue justice on occasion. I work on public policy. I do uh, speaking and education uh, and advocacy work for sexual assault and child abuse survivors. Uh, and then I also work with uh, both the SBC and am working with the PCA on child abuse uh, policies and prevention and education and awareness. A few things going on. Just a few. Just a few. Okay, so then we're going to get to our main topic. But first, we've sort of touched on this. And Rachel, you have a little bit of a less story 
on this exact topic, but how did you get involved in the PCA? Tim, let's start with you because you you are actually in it. Uh, tell us how you got involved in this denomination in the first place. Well, my story is like many other uh, stories of, of, of people involved in a campus ministry. I, I grew up Pentecostal in the church. My dad is a music minister and grew up going to church every time the doors were open. Um, I had a period of rebellion in late high school and early college years, uh, real, which was really rebelling against the, the, the legalism I was raised in. And also, uh, per the topic we're going to talk about today, had a lot to do with the abuse that I experienced as a child. Um, but when I got to uh, NC State University, go Wolfpack, um, got involved with Campus Crusade, uh, which is now called Crew. And uh, it was through that that I continued my sort of theological journey, came back to faith in Christ, started following Jesus again, got involved in the church and was really looking for an expression of the faith that uh, lined up more with what I saw the scriptures to be teaching and uh, which I decided was not the, the Pentecostal uh, teaching that I grew up in. And so I could have gone any number of directions, was really looking at Bible church um, type of direction. But there was a PCA church plant that was being planted right downtown near NC State. Um, brand new church. And I had always been involved in church and been someone who played music and was serving. And I wanted to be at a church where I could serve and also be have connection to the pastor. And, and, uh, and so basically I'm PCA because of, you know, a, a church that was started down near, uh, campus and got involved with that and served and was mentored and, uh, became reformed, even though I didn't know it, um, and, uh, came to Covenant Seminary and that's, that's how I got in the PCA. Awesome. Uh, Rachel, you can just tell us your faith story and church story. That, I mean, obviously doesn't have to be PCA. So give us, fill us in how, how God has worked in your life. Yeah, I was privileged to be raised in a very healthy uh, Christian home that really, as I created an excellent foundation um, for uh, the education, the advocacy work that I do in church now. Uh, we are raised predominantly in a, a non-denominational uh, context. Um, my husband and I now attend and uh, have attended for some number of years uh, an RBC church, non-denominational uh, uh, RBC church, Reformed Baptist. Um, and God has just done um, a lot of work uh, in both of us and really opened a lot of ministry doors over the last three years uh, to be having much needed conversations uh, about child abuse and sexual assault uh, and just understanding how our, our theology should approach, uh, should shape our approach to issues of abuse and issues of justice uh, when we properly understand the gospel and properly understand uh, just the doctrines of God. Uh, and I started uh, being able to do some work within the PCA, uh, particularly in the last couple of years uh, through my sexual assault and advocacy work. I became connected uh, with some PCA members, Diane Langberg and a few others. Also became connected uh, with some, some pastors in the PCA, uh, helped them navigate a few situations, uh, had the chance to speak and educate out at Tim Keller's church, Redeemer Presbyterian out in NYC, um, and just through, through a variety of capacities, uh, have been privileged to be able to, uh, to work in the PCA to a capacity and to just deepen my appreciation um, for your denomination and for the brothers and sisters in it. We're so thankful to have you join us and be a part of us and help us. 
Okay, so we're about to get into the, like the topic that we're, we're we need to talk about. But can you, Rachel, then share the lead in of your, I guess, sports career and why this is something that's going on, um, and then how you got involved? I don't know if everyone knows. I'm I would sort of be shocked if people don't know, but you, you never know. Like, sort of imagine that not everybody knows who you are. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so calling what I did a sports career is very generous. Uh, I was a gymnast when in my early teens, uh, but I wasn't any good. I was a club level gymnast and I really stunk to be honest, but it was something that I loved to do. So I, I appreciate that you referred to it as my athletic career. That's I, very great. I count that. <laughs> Not if you'd seen it. Um, but I did, I loved the sport. Um, and it was through the sport that I experienced sexual assault when I was assaulted by the Olympic team physician under the guise of medical treatment uh, when I was 15 years old. And the abuse continued for around two years. Um, but I think an important part of what shapes my advocacy is that actually wasn't the first time I had experienced abuse. I was also sexually assaulted in our church when I was seven years old. Uh, and I experienced at that point both the positive uh, and negative responses uh, that so many survivors in the church context often experienced. There was uh, a group of trained sexual assault counselor church who saw the warning signs and they came to my parents and they said, I think we have a problem. Uh, and I was blessed and fortunate to have parents who immediately responded and listened to those words of caution uh, and put up healthy boundaries uh, and protection that saved me from further abuse. Uh, and of course, at that point, no one outside of myself knew that abuse had already occurred. But because of those educated adults who had the courage to speak up and because of my parents and others who listened, I was saved from further abuse. Uh, unfortunately, I also experienced the converse response that many survivors experience in the church community, which is that when my parents put up those boundaries, uh, there were a lot of prominent church members and very dear friends of ours whose immediate response was um, to believe that we had made an accusation without foundation. Uh, and some of their misunderstandings of theology, misunderstanding of counseling, really caused them to do a lot of damage uh, to my family. and to me, uh, help for my abuse at 15, because the message I internalized at that point was, if you can't prove your abuse, if you can't 100% prove it, don't speak up. Mm. Uh, and it caused me to question my own judgment and my own perceptions. Uh, and that really did set the stage for what happened with Larry when I was 15. Um, and so for the next one, when I started to realize that Larry was a sexual predator and that he was abusing, um, my mom and I started to talk about, you know, what, what do we do with this information? Uh, and partly because of my experiences with the church uh, and just because of watching how our culture, uh, both church, you know, Christian and secular, treats sec sexual assault survivors. You know, I said to my mom, there's, there's nothing I can do without some kind of public pressure. One voice is never going to be enough. Um, and so we talked about actually going to the news at that point in time when I was around 17 and, and seeing if we could get somebody to run a story, somebody who could reach other assault survivors. And what year was that? Oh, that would have been around 2003. Okay. Yeah, around 2003. Um, but that was, you know, reporting on sexual assault was so different back then. Um, you know, and I didn't have my my education as an attorney yet. Um, and so we just, we really didn't know how to get the news media to pick up a story like that. Um, and so I really didn't feel like there's anything I could do. Uh, and there were a couple of points in time that I did try to disclose to people within the gymnastics community, good friends of ours uh, who loved children, who wanted to do the right thing. Um, but I wasn't able to, to really fully convince them that I knew I had been assaulted 
And and at that point in time, I realized, uh, or just really reaffirmed, if I can't get someone who wants to do the right thing, who knows my family, who trusts me to believe that I know what I'm talking about when I'm telling them who Larry is, there's just nothing I can do. One voice alone is never going to be enough. So it really was a period of about 16 years of researching uh, to really be able to narrow down exactly what Larry was doing and be able to articulate it and explain it. And also a period of about 16 years of watching his career, looking for an opportunity to be believed and heard uh, before I finally saw that opportunity. Uh, But three years ago, uh, there was a newspaper article that was run by a newspaper in Indianapolis called the Indy Star. And they had spent a year doing an undercover investigation of USA Gymnastics and how they had been burying reports of sexually abusive coaches in the organization. Uh, And Larry, the team doctor, didn't didn't appear in that paper. Uh, But when I saw that article, I realized, you know, this is this is it. These are journalists who understand the dynamics of abuse. They've been able to make people pay attention and maybe they can do something about Larry, too. And so I wrote to them immediately uh, and told them what had happened, told them what evidence I had and said, I'll come forward as publicly as necessary if you can just get the story out. Um, And what transpired over the next couple of years uh, was that I I went up to Michigan and filed a police report. They ran a huge expose using my story. uh, And because of that, over a series of uh, about a year and a half, Larry was charged with sexual assault uh, against multiple victims. Uh, And in the end, over 500 women have come forward as victims of Larry's abuse, almost 200 of which testified at his sentencing hearing. And he is now in jail for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful for the result that we achieved. achieved. Yeah. Well, we're grateful for your part in that, Rachel, and your courage that uh, it took for sure uh, to come forward with, with what happened to you. Um, Tim, kind of to intersect here, uh, come, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your story and how, uh, you know, kind of how we get here with you and Rachel on our pod today. Yeah, well, um, the reason why, well, let me let me back up a little bit because uh, I think this is this will help your listeners understand a little bit about me and my journey. Um, a few years back, you guys probably remember a General Assembly, a, a friend of ours named Mike Sloan brought a personal resolution about abuse to the PCA General Assembly, and he did that all on his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, he now has a ministry called Grace, which is godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. But uh, he brought that uh, resolution, and it had to do with, uh, you know, abuse in the church. And, and, um, and when, I, when I thought about, when I, when I heard the resolution, I thought, hey, that's a great thing. Um, it's, it's awful that people are abused. And, and that just goes to show you how I think abuse victims often don't even think about mm-hmm. themselves. Um, because I, I, didn't, I didn't make the connection that I... I'm, I'm an abuse victim, a person who was a, not abused in, in the church, although I probably was, but, but in the church environment, around the church, in the church, in a place where the church could have seen what was going on with me and responded. And so I was physically abused by um, my mother when I was in, and, uh, and being in and around the church, um, having a dad who was, a, for all intents and purposes, a minister, and he was a licensed minister, and uh, nobody did anything about it. Uh, but uh, but up until that time, and I, I guess I was probably, I don't know how many years ago that was. I guess I was 30, 34, 35. I didn't, it didn't make the connection for myself that this was, this was me 
that this was right. about. Like, and um, and it really didn't happen until later. Not really having much to do with what Mike was doing, but just through my own experience in counseling and coming to terms with the fact that uh, of my past. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I'm on this committee now because uh, during that whole process, we haven't even talked about how there is a committee. Yeah. I think. Uh, I'm, I'm no, let's wait a minute. We're, we're gonna wait a minute on the committee and the study report. Okay. Here. Yeah. You know, let's pause for a second and say, I so appreciate both of you talking about this. And this is such a hard topic and it's so important. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful that we can talk about it, but I also hate having to do it. Um, so it, it's, it's conflictual, but I think it's honoring. And so I just want you to know, I'm so sorry these things have happened. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful that we can uh, help others, right? So, so let me ask you, Rachel. Then, I, I, do you think that there are certain places, and, and maybe what are the dynamics of institutions or places where abuse is more common, or do you think it's just we don't know? It's all across the board. Is it gymnastics? What's the connection between gymnastics, community, and church? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's actually both. It's really both. Um, child abuse is something that's absolutely rampant in our society. You know, uh, experts estimate that one in four girls are going to experience sexual assault during childhood and one in six boys. And a lot of people believe that's probably undercounted. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say anecdotally, I support the idea that's probably closer to one in three. In my circles, it's certainly closer to one in three. And I, and I could say that before I enter the realm of advocacy. Um, so, yes, it is incredibly prevalent in society. You know, if we had a quarter of our children that were suffering from a specific disease, uh, we would call that an endemic, an epidemic. But we have at least a quarter uh, of our children, a quarter to a fifth of our children that are suffering from sexual assault. Uh, and we're not treating it like the epidemic that it is. So it's everywhere. That being said, something that we have learned about predators over the last couple of decades, uh, and there's there's an incredible uh, psychologist named Ann Salter who's done quite a bit of this work, uh, and her specialty is in understanding predators and how they operate. And she did incredibly groundbreaking work uh, in digging into the mind of a predator, what they look for, how they operate. And one of the things that she uncovered a couple of decades ago is that predators seek out religious institutions. Uh, And they do that for a couple of reasons. They do that because they tend to be very strong on authority, which means they are less likely to listen to disclosures of abuse and much more likely to protect someone who is in a position of authority. Uh, And also because religious institutions often mishandle doctrines of grace and forgiveness in a way that allows them, uh, that leads them to leave a predator in a position of authority and to discount um, stories that they've heard or allegations that they've heard. And so while we do see child abuse everywhere, um, there is a certain flavor, if you will, to why abuse is so prevalent in religious denominations and why it is so often mishandled in religious denominations. Mm-hmm. And then what's the, what do you think is a connection that with sports or gymnastics? Is it because it's also a tight-knit community and there's a lot of, I don't know, competition or secrecy or closeness or... What are the touch points there? Well, some of the dynamics that we consistently see crossing uh, really all barriers is uh, very authoritarian 
environments where you have an environment where the authority figure um, is not easily seen as wrong, where those under authority are taught not to question. You know, in gymnastics, this looks like you know, a coach who can't be questioned because you're supposed to do what your coach says. In a church context, this more often than not looks at, you know, kind of takes on the flavor of someone who speaks up being labeled as divisive. Uh, labeled as a gossip, labeled as bringing false charges, but it's still that same that same general pattern of a, an imbalance in our perception of authority, uh, a misunderstanding uh, of how that authority is um, is really to flow down to those under you, uh, and so the concepts of authority are something that we really do see. Uh, across all of the dynamics between both athletics and church, uh, even though there's a there's a bit of a different uh, foundational reason that you'll see the church mishandle authority concepts compared to say an athletic community. So, Rachel, how does this uh, you know lead into your book? So, obviously, this is the baseline for it, but I know that's not you had other things that you're trying to accomplish in writing this book. Um, so why don't you tell us a little about your book and what your, you know, what it's about, what your hopes are for it, uh, for those who read it. And uh, I know you have other things coming after it that are related to it. So. Yeah, so I've written a couple of books. I wrote a little girl's book called What is a Little Girl Worth? And there's a, a boy's version that we'll be following. And that really looks at the concept of where we find our identity, find our value. Uh, and ask some questions of can my can my value be harmed? Can it be taken away? Uh, is my worth changed by my accomplishments uh, or by something that happens to me? Uh, because I think as you look at um, what so many of us, even as adults, wrestle with, we're really wrestling with concepts of value and identity. Uh, mm-hmm. And when we find our value and an identity in a, an extrinsic benchmark, a human or man-made benchmark, it really sets the stage for uh, for either moral compromise. Uh, or just for being crushed um, with with a misunderstanding uh, of where our value comes from. So that's the girl's book, and there's the boy's book to follow. Uh, and then I wrote a memoir of of the experience of coming and, and speaking um, and and bringing Larry to justice. And that is called uh, "How Much Is a Girl Worth?" or "What Is a Girl Worth?" Um, and there were a lot of hopes that I had for that book. Um, you know, at the outset, it's just an incredible story when you see all of the pieces that had to come together the behinds for the detective work and the prosecutorial work and uh, you know what had to happen with all of these different journalists literally across the world um, and and just that the coalition of women that ended up coming together to get to the result that we got the result that we got is unprecedented it almost mm-hmm. never happens so being able to take a behind the scenes look uh, at what happened and how that happened uh, it really is an incredible story in addition to that, I really wanted to be able to put a, a face and identity with the concept of trauma to bring people into the mind of a sexual abuse victim to help them understand what's going on at the moment of abuse, why why it takes, you know, answer some of those questions. What, what took you so long to speak up? Why didn't you cry out? Why didn't you fight back? Um, mm-hmm. And be able to help people understand in a very personal way what trauma is, what it feels like, the responses that typically come from trauma. And then what has to happen in the healing journey. Um, And I've been incredibly grateful to see uh, really the responses to the book. I've had a lot of survivors write in and say, I've never been able to put into words the concepts that I felt. Uh, And I feel like somebody gave me a voice when I didn't have a voice. Uh, I've had a lot of pastors and husbands and just, you know, people who haven't experienced abuse themselves write and say, I just, I understand so much better now uh, after having read your book. Um, And again, just that, just even the concept of, I, uh, stories are the most, I think the most powerful ways to really communicate. 
Um, and so to be able to take a true story and to look at all of the cultural dynamics of abuse, the socioeconomic dynamics of abuse, mm-hmm. uh, what sets the stage for abuse, what has, why abuse victims often aren't successful in a court process, aren't able to speak up, um, and to really pull all of that together with making a very personalized story of trauma and bring people into that narrative. Uh, it's just, it's an incredibly powerful way to communicate. And I think it's an incredibly powerful story because of how many people uh, really had to come together to get the result that we got. What do you think, uh, you know, as you think about how this all came together and you think about the impact that it seems to have had, like what is the, you know, the internal makeup that, because, you know, most, most of these stories, right, go unheard or unchecked, or even if they are heard, they're, they're undefended. You know, I have you know, women in my family who have suffered this kind of abuse and there's been no, nothing that's, there's been no ramifications, right? Like they're, they're just uh, in some ways forgotten, but this was part of, you know, a larger cultural narrative with me too and other things like what, why, how did that, how did that happen? Do you think? Um, you know, again, that's, that's a culmination of just an incredible amount of factors. Um, when I, when I came forward to the Indie Star, the, the very first dynamic there is you had a journalism team that understood the importance of abuse that was able to uncover those dynamics that could communicate trauma and abuse in a way that made people sit up and pay attention. Uh, and, and that doesn't always happen. Uh, you know, so you had, you had a journalism team that I could go to after 16 years of waiting, I had a journalism team that I could go to and they saw the importance of it. Um, you know, I look back on my life and just see all the, all the incredible things that got me to that point and becoming an attorney. I I didn't become an attorney to take down Larry. Um, but you know, learning, learning the law, learning how to communicate, it put me in a position where I was able to do all the medical research. I could do all the legal research. I literally put the case together for the journalism team. And when I came and and reported to the police, I had an entire evidence file and, and, you know, kind of a cover memorandum that outlined all of the law in Michigan, the case law, how courts interpreted the statutes and popped all the evidence into, uh, into the law and basically argued the case for them. Um, Because the reality is that most of the time for victims who speak up, we break down at the level of investigator or prosecutor. Out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, only about six result in criminal charges, only about five result in conviction and jail time. You know, we have hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits in the country, not because the evidence isn't there, but because the detective never bothered to look for the evidence. It didn't matter enough. Um, And so I, you know, I put together... The, the case file myself. Uh, and I worked very closely with the prosecutor um, to make sure that I was comfortable with the legal arguments that they were using and the way everything was proceeding. And I was incredibly blessed and in I got a gift that most survivors don't get. I got an incredibly skilled investigator who took my allegations seriously and moved very quickly on an investigation. I got an incredibly skilled prosecutor who picked up those case files and she said, I'm going to fight for every one of them. Um, you know, I had a police chief who fought for us behind the scenes when the initial local prosecutor was not going to press charges, even when there were 24 of us who had already filed police report. You know, in addition to that, we had just a cohort of journalists from literally around the world that I was able to work with on a daily basis um, and, and work with them to look at the law, to look at the medical information, to, to communicate what was going on in a way that caused other survivors to be able to hear that and say, oh, wait, that's me too, and to come forward. Uh, but if we hadn't had all of those things working together, we never would have gotten 
where we had gotten. Um, and so it's, it's all of those pieces. You had to have every single piece to get where we got. And most survivors don't have that. And that's part of what I wanted to communicate uh, in the book is it just that concept of, look, if it, if it cost a, a you know, middle-class educated white attorney this much mm-hmm. and all of these pieces had to come together. And despite my healthy upbringing and the support system that we had, that what it cost me and what it cost our family um, to, to go through this process and, um, and everything that I, that I had to have to be able to bring this forward. What is it like for somebody that doesn't have that, who hasn't had the chance to heal or who doesn't have the support system or doesn't have the education to put that case file together, who doesn't have a journalism team listening to them and a detective who's willing to fight for them? What does it cost that person? And what do we need to change societally and especially as a church so that we can start being those people? Right. Cause sometimes even like it's even the deck is even more stacked in a oh, church situation, right? Like absolutely. it's not just these perfect things have to fall in line for a case to even be heard, but then you have another level where you have people working against mm-hmm. that being heard. Um, and these are the people who are supposed to be your advocates are speaking for you, protecting you. Um, and that's, that seems insurmountable in some ways. Well, we're going to switch, Tim. You got the next question because then we're going to move into the study report and the committee and the work that we're doing for the church on this uh, on this topic. Um, But Rachel, I really appreciate your book. It's a memoir of your life story, which is always, of course, the best. But also, it's journalism, which is what you're talking about. And we've several times in our podcast even just mentioned journalism books Mm -hmm. and. You know, I got your book and I also have the children's book, by the way, when it first came out and I know, I knew what it was going to be about. Like I, but I read it in a day and just wept and wept and wept at the story, but also the, the least redemption part of the story and the, the justice part of the story. And, and also, I mean, I want to make sure to mention when you spoke at the trial, your speech is just like rings in my ears yeah. all the time of how, how you knew what you were talking about, how you told your story, how you pressed for justice, and as you preach the gospel. Yeah. And it is a gift to the world and also to the church. So Thanks, I for yeah. sure want to say I'm so sorry this is what happened but I am so thankful that uh, you have been working to turn this into these like you catastrophes, right? Where they can turn out for the good. So thank you for that. It's ministered to me and my church. And, you know, of course it makes me angry and sick, but also hopeful. So thank you. Thank you. Good work. Okay. Now let's talk about the work of this weird little subcommittee. Tim, what is it? Well, um, <clears throat> kind of going back to what, where I was, was going to go and, and kind of got uh, a little ahead of myself. So uh, with what happened before a few, a few years back at the General Assembly with Mike Sloan and his work and passing a, what became uh, not a personal resolution, but a, a resolution uh, brought up by several different presbyteries uh, on child protection really brought this issue to the fore of the denomination in a way that it hadn't been brought uh, before, 
Uh, and then um, part of what that uh, resolution said was that churches should, you know, churches and agencies should have child protection policies um, and, uh, and, and should uh, create an, an environment where, uh, where, where children are protected, where victims are protected. Uh, and the next kind of um, domino that fell was, was the, was the Me Too movement, which is, which is what uh, a part of, part of Rachel's story, the, the set bigger story. And, you know, the question is what happened to bring all this to pass? And I'm sitting here thinking, well, the short answer is God's providence is what happened. Like we can't deny that all these details were arranged by God to bring, uh, bring this to the to forefront of both society and church in a way that uh, we, that's undeniable. And so uh, there were some, some things that happened in the PCA uh, that brought this issue back uh, to the fore, some some cases that were in the review of presbytery records, and I know that this is this is GA like ninjutsu level stuff here. But um, and I know you talked to Joel Sinclair recently, so uh, this is uh, upper level type uh, GA uh, sub nerd stuff. Yeah, but it, it is, but it's important because you know what what the um, review of Presbyterian records does is it is exercises review and control. This is a part of accountability in our church. And it has been a couple of different instances where, uh, as we reviewed minutes, the, the members of the, the uh, committee saw things that didn't appear to, to, didn't appear to have gone according to our, our, our rules, according to our procedures. And one of those, a couple of those came back before the assembly and it really, it really um, caused one of them in particular where a woman um, had an issue finding justice in her local church. Uh, she was abused by her uh, husband and um, in the church, the local church mishandled it and, you know, was, were look, was looking for justice and justice couldn't happen because of the rules of our, our, our book of church order and our rules of assembly operation. And uh, I remember that I, I was thinking about, what I might say in that debate. And, um, and one of the things that I said, as I stood up on the floor of general assembly is if, if our rules are preventing us from doing what's right, then they have to change. And I said, the book changed. And, um, and that's really, that's really where the ball started rolling toward forming this committee is people started saying, okay, what do we need to do? If things need to change, what do we need to do? And uh, the primary, uh, the first step was to form a, an ad hoc committee or a study committee uh, to look at the issue of abuse in the church. Um, that came up in General Assembly last time we had one, uh, which seems like eons ago, uh, but that was in Dallas in, in, uh, in uh, 20, uh, 2019. I'm trying to remember before COVID what, that, what year that was. Uh, and so the General Assembly approved the committee and that committee was given a task to, uh, to, to report and, uh, and our moderator, Howie Donahoe, he just did a fabulous job of putting some wonderful people on this committee, who some of whom have been mentioned. Um, uh, Diane Langberg, who's a PCA member near Philadelphia, she's written some, some incredible books about the issue. She's been walking with the victims her entire professional career. Uh, she is a person that if you're, if you're, uh, if you're at a PCA church, you should, uh, you should absolutely look at having her come and speak at your conference at your presbytery. Uh, meeting to to be more informed on the issue of abuse, uh, and and uh, so she's got a, a book that's recently come out, and Darby Strickland is another 
uh, person on our committee who has a book recently come out. We have pastors. We have pastors on the committee who run ministries. So a ministry called Refuge, which is out west, um, which is something you, your listeners should check out. But uh, there's just a lot of fantastic people that are on this committee, and one of the people that we were uh, looking to add was Rachel and, um, and, and how he uh, gave me some contact information and said, well, you know, if you, uh, if you would like to pursue uh, having her on the committee, here's the email address. So uh, we, as she, as she mentioned, she had done some work with Redeemer in New York city and I emailed her and I just, I said, you know, we would love to have you help us and, and lend your gravitas and lend your experience to the work that we're doing here. And she graciously has agreed even though she's very busy uh, to spend time with us and help us. And so we're very, uh, we're very grateful. We're very grateful. We are grateful. Rachel, what's it like to be on a PCA study committee? <laughs> I mean, you guys do weird stuff with your babies, but other than that, you're all right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm teasing. It has been absolutely wonderful. I have a lot of respect for the men and women who are on the committee uh, and being able to sit down and just have in-depth theological discussions and, um, you know, and be able to look at how our worldview and how our theology should, um, should shape our approach to abuse, how we should be understanding concepts of justice, what the gospel should look like when it's fleshed out. Um, it's just been, it's been an incredible experience. I'm very grateful for the men and women on the committee and for the work that they've done. And I'm grateful to be able to have those honest conversations and to sharpen each other. Uh, as we work towards having uh, a really fully orbed understanding of of theology and the gospel and the character of God. Amen. So you have hope. We're looking for some hope, right? There's hope. (laughs) There is always hope. God is always purifying and, uh, and redeeming his church and moving them forward. There is always hope. I will say, yeah, there, there is a lot of hope, but there's also a lot of, hard work in front of us and a lot of very sobering uh, things that we're, we're going to have to consider as, as we've been doing this work as a committee and um, women and women have started and men have started coming forward to us, telling us their stories. Uh, and it is, it has been a, uh, it's been a flood and that's before even we have uh, gotten our really gotten in front of the denomination with a report uh, in, in a, a, a oral report or a written report. Uh, and, and imagine that after that happens, there'll be even more people that feel comfortable and safe and coming forward. And so, you know, there, there's a there's a real problem in our denomination with the way that we have, have uh, responded to abuse, the way that we've cultivated uh, environments which um, protect and, and don't um, don't don't uh, find justice or seek justice for victims. And so, there is hope, but that that hope comes with people who have to be as brave as Rachel here. And standing for what's right, and speaking up, even when you're going to, uh, people are gonna um, not be very happy with what you have to say, uh, mm-hmm. and, and push back and um, and be up in, in, in attack. And so uh, it takes a lot of courage to be that kind of uh, prophetic voice. But we need people in the PCA who are willing not to stop their ears, not to close up their ears to the truth. Uh, that are willing to, that are going to be willing to hear some of the things that we have to say. And uh, and that brings us to the place where we can be a where we can be a denomination which uh, protects and also responds to abuse in the way that that the Lord Jesus calls us to, and um, and 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 our hope. Uh, speaking of hope, 
and I think Rachel would agree with this, is that the PCA, because of our denomination or our governmental structures, our hope is that we could actually be a leader and example in the evangelical world of how to do this. Um, because we do have a connectivity that we always talk about. Uh, we do have those, those basic fundamental structures of church governance. And we do have the, we do have the opportunity uh, to really set an example and, 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 and be, um, and, and be a kind of a forerunner for other churches learning how to do this well. And so I think if, if we were to lay, label a hope, I think that's probably where it would be that, that our work would have a lasting impact on not just our nomination, but the whole So this question, maybe to both of you to kind of follow up with that, Tim, is like, how can we individually be safe people? And I know you guys are, another report will talk about this, but I also know Rachel talks about it in her book and, but just for our listeners, how can we be a, a safe person and how can our churches start to be safe places in response to this? I know this is a big question, by the way. I'll let, I'll let Rachel start if you, if you have anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is a big question. Um, yeah, there are a lot of facets to being a safe place to disclose and to being a safe church to disclose. At the very core, we have to understand our theology correctly. We have to properly define and understand authority. We have to properly define and understand concepts of grace and forgiveness. Uh, we have to properly define and understand even our doctrines of sufficiency of scripture uh, so that we are properly educated to, to be able to recognize dynamics of abuse, to understand trauma, to understand the impact uh, and then to be able to understand the hope that the gospel brings mm-hmm. um, to those situations. So at the very core, we have to properly understand our theology, and that takes work. You know, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of these concepts are not easy. There hasn't been a whole lot of work and teaching done on them from a wide variety of sources. Uh, and so that takes effort to really find uh, who trustworthy theologically sound sources are that can help lay that foundation. Uh, Tim mentioned Diane Langberg uh, and the organization Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, uh, both of uh, both of which have um, a lot of PCA members on them. Um, and those are, two, those are my top two organizations for education. Um, and so my encouragement to pastors is to start there, start with understanding your theology and the practical application. Uh, but then the other thing that we really have to wrestle with um, is the reality that you know, yeah, a lot of a lot of the emphasis is put on policy. Well, let, let's just change our policy. Right. Uh, but policy is really only as good as the heart behind it. Right. And the, the greatest indicator uh, to victims about whether or not they are going to be safe, and the greatest indicator to perpetrators about whether or not their victims will be heard, whether this church is a safe place to pray, is how the church and the leadership messages publicly on the issues of abuse. How do you talk about abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse? Uh, from your pulpit? How do you preach on concepts of justice and forgiveness and God's wrath against sin? How do you handle some of those difficult passages that relate to marriage? Uh, How are you handling uh, sermons on divorce? Are you communicating by what you preach from the pulpit, by what you teach, that you understand the dynamics of abuse? That if someone were to come to you and disclose, uh, that you would know what they're talking about. Uh, that you would understand the incredible damage done to them, that you would understand the danger they were in, uh, that you would understand and be able to apply biblical concepts uh, of justice in a way uh, that the truth can really be found? Or will your responses cause further damage and shut them down? Uh, And and wrapped into that uh, is not just how we teach and preach from the pulpit, but how willing we are 
to hold others who do not handle these properly to account. Uh, you know, far, far more often than not, we want all of the privileges that come uh, with mutual ministry and none of the responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a situation where there has been a church or a leader who has either abused or who has grossly mishandled abuse, uh, and other churches and leaders are unwilling to speak out uh, and to call to account and to push for accountability and truth and biblical principles of justice, when those leaders are unwilling to hold other leaders to account, what that signals to victims is you don't matter enough. Right. Or there is such a misunderstanding of these dynamics that their voices cannot be heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it is always the hardest to see when it's in our own community. Uh, we, all of us know child abuse and domestic abuse is vile and reprehensible. Uh, but it's very hard to see when it's in our own community and we want it to be something other. So when there are allegations of abuse or even more frequently of mishandling abuse, we want there to be a reason why it's not as bad in our community as it is in this other community over here. And so the temptation is to say, well, this, this situation in my community is different because, and then to have reasons why you don't have to take these allegations as seriously or why it's not right uh, to, to put um, you know, to call other leaders to account. Um, but the reality is we only understand uh, and prioritize as much as we're willing um, to, to do in our own communities. And so when you don't communicate that in your own community, what it communicates to victims is it doesn't matter enough and I don't understand. And what it communicates to others is this, this is a safe place for me to. And you've taken a lot of heat for that, right, Rachel? I mean, just online, you know, in speaking out against some of these different things publicly, different leaders, situations. And just to back up what you're saying, how challenging this is even is, in the aftermath of all that you've already done, there's even more dominoes of, of dissent and vitriol that you experience even in the aftermath, talking about these things in any other place. Yeah, I can, I can consistently say that the worst things that are said and done are coming from the church, consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was very interesting. There was a uh, particular situation that I referenced in my victim impact statement, uh, and that, and that began to be discussed publicly. And when I discussed this particular situation, I said, if I had been abused in this church context, and if my abuse had been covered by these church leaders, instead of by Michigan state university, I wouldn't be heralded as a hero for proclaiming the gospel, I would be denigrated as a bitter, angry, divisive person who was out to destroy the church. And the most incredible thing was when I said that within 24 hours, that was exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. Major denominational leaders, prominent pastors immediately began, some of them began pulling requests that they had made for me to write blog articles. They began pulling requests that they had made for interviews. And their immediate response was, I appreciate what you did with MSU, but it's mm-hmm. different in this community. It's different in the church. They did exactly what I said was going to be done mm-hmm. because we don't want to see it in our own community. We don't want it to be our friends. Mm-hmm. We don't want it to be somebody we've co-labored with. And we have a very hard time reconciling how someone can do very good things and say very good things and yet have done so much damage on the issue of abuse. Uh, and really that, that intermingling of somebody who does good things and yet is an abuser or an enabler, that's a dynamic we see all the time. 
Abusers are always skilled manipulators. And oftentimes the people who enable abuse or, or cover up abuse or do not respond properly to abuse, they are often also dynamic leaders. That's why they're in positions of authority that allowed them to cover up. And we can recognize that when it's Michigan State University and it's Penn State and it's the Catholic Church. We don't want to recognize it when it's an evangelical denomination. We want it to be different. And unfortunately, that is still, I would say, to a very large degree, how we are responding to abuse when it's in our own community. And that heart change is going to be one of the first things that's going to have to change. But the church should also be the best equipped for this change. If we truly understand the depths of human deception, if we truly understand depravity, if we truly understand God's holiness and God's justice, those are all the foundational concepts we need to be able to respond appropriately, to be able to recognize uh, the the level of self-deceit that our own hearts are capable of, to be able to recognize some of the principles that we talk about, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, we talk all the time about a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a biblical concept. Um, But what we don't want to recognize is that usually looks like somebody who's good. It does not look like a wolf. It looks like a sheep. It's somebody who says the right things, who's done very good things, uh, who has oftentimes made a big impact for God's kingdom. Um, We have the theological foundation if we have the courage to apply it consistently. And if we don't do that, we dim the glory and the goodness of God. So important then as as church members and pastors and whoever is listening to this, that we know what we're looking for, because what you're exactly saying is the a person who wants access to abuse kids wants access. And how do you get access? You have to act trustworthy. Mm-hmm. You have to spend a long time to be considered trustworthy. So you get the access. And so we need to know as a church, we require at city press, everybody knows and goes through training for members. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about it. We read the book, God made me, I think it's called. We read it yeah. you know, during church and I make sure everyone gets a copy and we reference speak uppers in sermons. Right. And so we, we keep, we want to, like you're saying is be a safe place for the most vulnerable. Listen to those who speak up, tell everyone what we're looking for and that it's okay to say and be wrong. Right. And signal to abusers that we know about this. This is not a safe place to be an abuser. We, exactly. we all know what we're looking for. So stay away from here. Um, and that I think is really important. So we, we put it on a lot of stuff all the time because we want to make sure people that want access to kids to hurt them, they won't come anywhere near here because it's not, it's not okay for them. That sounds like what you guys are talking about, what you're talking about. That's going to be in the report, right, Tim? It's going to be in there. Yep. All right. Well, we're anxious to get it. When's it coming out? Uh, well, uh, uh, it'll be coming out. Uh, we're, we're, we're finishing up uh, the, uh, the, the, the rough draft or the first draft of it going over uh, with, uh, with our committee, and, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, unveil it in the next uh, year. Great. So, I think this is one of the most important things that we've done and worked on. 
So thank you for your work and labor. I know it's a labor of love and yeah. you're not getting paid. Nope, not getting paid for it. But, uh, but you know, I, I think, yeah, and I, I think um, it, all of us are doing this because we, we, uh, we care deeply about, about this subject and, and we really want um, to protect, uh, help protect victims and we want the PCA to become uh, a, a denomination which does this well. And so that's, that's why we're committing ourselves to it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Rachel, I've already thanked you, but I want to say thank you again. I'm uh, super glad to get to meet you. I've been mm-hmm. following you and tracking you and you're a hero of mine. So thank you for that. Um, so I'm praying for you. Hope everyone will follow what you're doing and get your books and, and then track with these things that we've mentioned, the organizations like Grace and Diane Lamberg and, and Tim, thank you. Um, we didn't even get to this, but your chapter in Helos Emanuel is one of my very favorites. Uh, I'm so thankful for how God has used you in my life. Also used you at the city of my alma mater, Go Tigers, and in the life of my daughter and her husband and marrying them. And so thank you for ministering to me and my family as well. I really appreciate that. Um, always willing to take a BCO text every once in a while. I fire those out to you. Maybe I'm going to get a little better to where you're getting less. I hope. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Not from you anyway. (laughs) I'll fill in for you, Doug. I'll, 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 I'll take your slot and send it to Tim. Okay. Yeah. And and maybe Rachel's going to be on the hook now. Now she's getting another PCA. She's going to get familiar, right? Oh, absolutely. She's got to get, she's got to get her. Get the lawyer attorney vibe and the PCA. You're like, Oh, it's red meat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both. Thanks for being on our podcast. I hope all listeners will uh, respond and do something for good and pray for our denomination the world, the church, um, and let's let's uh, seek the glory of God and, and have hope. Thanks for the reminder. There is hope. There is hope. I know that's true. All right. Buy Rachel's book. Yep. Books. Yep. Appreciate it, y'all. Thanks. Uh, thank you both so much. Yeah. Thank good you. to have you. Good to meet you, Rachel. See you soon. Heart PCA. Heart PCA.